0: Not working. We had a slide up there. No, not that one. That's okay. It's a picture of a church that was built in, 18, in the 18th century. It was built in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. The old South Meeting House. Uh, I had a photo of it and it's this beautiful church... And in the photo, you can—it's in my notes—if you've got uh, good eyes there—you can see light streaming into this white-walled interior. And some of us might look at that space for a church, and we might think, "Oh, looks empty. The uh, walls look bare." Uh, One criticism of this type of church is that it's an architecture of negation. And we might ask the builders who built that church in the 18th century, why did they design and build a church that was so empty? And those that built it, the Puritans of New England in the 18th century, they might have said to us, what do you mean empty? as you see those windows and the light streaming in. They might have challenged us because I don't think they saw an empty church with simply white walls and no furnishings. They didn't see an empty church. They saw a church full. They saw a church full of light because the Puritans were the descendants of John Calvin and Calvin said that there was no greater symbol no greater symbol in the created world for God other than light. Light. Light's just one of those things. It's hard to describe, I and mean, when we operate with its realities, and it's so familiar to us. But light is one of those things you can't put a circle around it. It keeps going out and out. It's not clear when it ends. And this is what John is saying in the book of 1 John. Why don't you open up to 1 John? Because there in 1 John, John says, God is light. Now, for those that were reading this for the first time, and perhaps those that had read the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament beforehand, this is no new revelation It's a metaphor that we see to describe God all throughout the Bible, the concept of light. In Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 104 verse 2, God wraps himself in light like a garment. In Psalm 36 verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love from our reading. In your light do we see light. And in Psalm 43, send out your light. And your truth. The concept of connecting God with light is nothing new in the pages of Scripture. But there, interestingly, John does present to us something new in the way he connects God and light. Have a look there in verse 5, because he says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him There is no darkness at all. It's interesting what John says there. Why does John say we learned it or we heard it from him? He doesn't say, I mean, I've been reading the Old Testament and we have all these great descriptions from the Psalms that God is light and therefore I want to remind you what's written in the Old Testament that God is light. It's not what he says. He says that we've we've heard and we've learnt it from him. See, there's a difference that John came to appreciate in his own life. My grandparents on my mother's side came from a very small but beautiful Greek island, and so I grew up uh, seeing photos, hearing stories uh, of what this island was like and the beautiful harbour, and um, it was a very familiar place to me in my childhood but then when I went there aged I think 23 there when I saw that harbour and saw that island for the very first time that was a very different experience from growing up just hearing and seeing some photos it was an overwhelming experience to touch and see that beautiful reality and so in the same way this is what John is Saying, yes, God is light, but we've encountered him not just through a photograph in an abstract kind of way, but we've come to understand what it means that God is light in a very profound way. See, in the same way, God's people knew that God was light. But they didn't know what it meant for God to be light in his perfection until... Until they heard it from him, until they saw him, until they touched him. The hymn that John is referring to is obviously the Lord Jesus and the apostles' witness of his life, his love for God, and his love for others. You see, they didn't know that God was light and that light clears confusion in darkened lives, that it clears confusion and it makes sense of the world, they didn't know that until, until they started following Jesus. They didn't know that God was light and that his light brings salvation until one dark day, on a Friday afternoon in a hill outside of Jerusalem. And there they saw him, in darkness on the cross and then they started to begin to see the light of God Jesus said in John's gospel that John records that Jesus says I am the light of the world and back in in 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 the very start there John reminds us that he saw heard and touched Jesus Matthew records that the people were sitting in darkness and that in Jesus they have seen a great light, a great light had dawned. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, particularly if we've been around church for a while, we need to ask ourselves, do we know that God is light? Yes, of course we know (laughs) conceptually that God is light. But do we know? Do we know that he is our light? And, and how would we know? How would we know if God is our light? Well, the reality is that many of us at times feel utterly confused about what it is to live in this world. There are times, I'm sure, in your life where you've lacked a purpose, a direction, where you've kind of wondered what the meaning of life was, Where you've been confused. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you are confused about life. Well, I want to remind us this morning that there is a light. Maybe you are here this morning and that you're uncertain if God is for you. And even perhaps if there is a God at all. And I want to say this morning, there is a light Some of you might feel like your life is overwhelmed by darkness. And I want to tell you that there is a light. See, the light shines in the darkness. And John tells us in his gospel that the darkness could not, does not, and will not overcome it. Because here John is helping Christians. He's helping Christians in the first century struggled in a, dark and, in a darkened world, often overcome by the darkness of the reality of their lives and he's helping us as well. And the great thing for us to remember here this morning is he's not telling us something to do. He's not saying, first and foremost, there's something that we need to do. Men like things to do. They like things to fix. But that's not what John's telling us. He's not even telling us what to think as he writes this letter. John's message to those Christians in the first century and to us is first and foremost, his message is to give us a vision of who God is. Because if we just have a vision of who God is, just a glimpse of God in his light, then everything else takes care of itself. We operate down here, the troubles of our life, the darkness, the problems. But John is lifting our eyes to see who God is and that he is light. And he does it, uh, the, the effect, and, and sorry, this, this light has an effect. And it's there in your outline. That there's three ways in which I think John is helping us to see what this light does. So after point two in your outline, light exposes, because John wants us not to just know about life as a concept. He wants us to live in this light. Have a look there in verses six and seven. Verse seven, first of all, but if we walk in the light, you see what John's saying? He's saying that there is an experience of this light to be had. And if we're not experiencing this light, it's because, verse six, it's because... We walk in darkness. And so we need to just again stop and consider and ask the question, are we living in the light? What would it look like? How would we know? Well, consider what the light does. The first thing we learn here in this section is that The light exposes sin. In verses 8 and 10, or 8 to 10, we hear these two voices. One voice is of the person speaking who does have an authentic relationship with God, but there's another voice. There's another voice there in verse 8. It's the voice of the one who does not have an authentic relationship with God. It's the voice of the person in verse 8 and 10, the voice that says, no, nah, I, don't, I don't have any sin. It's the voice that denies the reality of sin. I don't normally listen to the female singer Christina Aguilera, but I did hear one of her songs this week. Now, I'm not imagining that many of us know who she is, but she's quite a popular female singer, she's actually a beautiful singer. Uh, there's, um, there was an uh, a article uh, last year in Rolling Stones that top 100 singers of all time, and Christina Aguilera is a pop singer, very popular, 250 million views on the particular song I heard on YouTube, but she's actually technically incredible, and she sings this song so amazingly, it's called Beautiful, these are the words. She says, no matter what they say, words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring me down. So don't bring me down today. Do you know that song? Some of us, some of us are nodding. See, what happens when the reality of our lives doesn't meet the expectation of what we have for ourselves? What do we do? Well, we deny We deny the reality of our lives and we want to tell ourselves something else. We want to say to ourselves, I think, what this song echoes. We want to tell ourselves that we are beautiful no matter what they say. We are beautiful in every way. But actually, we know that if we are honest with ourselves, none of us are beautiful in every single way. John calls the reality of human lives as it is. He doesn't gloss it. He doesn't give it a gloss. He doesn't give it an airbrush uh, render. He says there, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. There are three things often that happen when we deny sin. We deceive ourselves. Sorry, when uh, we say that we are without sin... We often deny it. Secondly, we deflect or we blame others. And thirdly, we diminish its seriousness. But I just want to stay for a moment on the denial of sin because John kind of unwraps two consequences of the reality of denying our sin, of telling ourselves we are beautiful in every way when the reality is that we know that we're not. See, to deny sin in our lives, isn't just deceiving ourselves. It actually gets worse. Have a look there in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. How do we make God out to be a liar? Well, you know, haven't you read the Bible? All throughout the Bible, it says that humans are sinful, sinful. Our problem as humans is sin. In Genesis, the very first six chapters of the Bible, we see the reality of this. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the writer's evaluation of humanity is this, that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. We flip over to the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, and we read that all are under the power of sin, that no one is righteous, not even one. This is the witness of God's word. But I don't know about you. When, when you hear those verses, do they sink deep into your heart? They tend to just bounce off, don't they? Oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's in the Bible. It's got to be true. But I don't feel like that. I don't feel that bad. Especially if I'm singing this song, I'm beautiful in every way. Why is that? Why is that, yes, we, we say it's God's word, it's powerful, we know we're sinful, and yet when we read of Scripture's witness to the reality of who we are, we're not overcome most of the time. I would suggest most of the time. We're not overcome by the reality of what God's word is saying about us. I'm not. Why don't we feel... The reality of our sin. Well, there might be many reasons, but here's one. The reality is, we spend so much of our lives comparing ourselves to others. We do this all the time. You've already done it, just I would suspect some of us, some of the more sinful people, some of the more angelic ladies haven't done this, but some of the more sinful men have already compared themselves to others just walking into church this morning. We always do this. We're always evaluating ourselves in comparison to others, comparing ourselves with others. The intelligent person, the one who's been gifted with intellect, often is so conceited in their superior and sophisticated assessments of everyone and everything because they're not as ignorant like the masses out there and those who that kind of person looks down on Those people see the towering arrogance of that intelligence and they feel so superior that they're not like that intelligent kind of person. And the loud person looks at the quiet person and says, hmm, don't they have an opinion? Don't they have anything to say? And the quiet look at the loud and they think, why don't they just shut up? And the active person looks at the inactive person and thinks, hmm, just a selfish, kind of lazy person. And the inactive person looks at the active person and thinks, oh, they're a selfish, unconsidered, driven person. See, we're always comparing ourselves and comparing ourselves to the weaknesses of others because that makes us feel better about ourselves. That makes us think that we're beautiful in every way. I mean, isn't this why reality TV is so popular? I know none of you watch reality TV, but in our world out there, it's very popular. It's very popular. Why? Because it makes you feel good about yourself. When you see the mess of other people's lives, it makes you feel so good that you're such a person of integrity. You're so together. God's Word reminds us here this morning that people... Others, one another, are not our standard. They're not our benchmark. The standard to which we need to compare ourselves against is God himself, and he is what? He is light. He is light. God's light exposes our sin, especially as we look at where God's light shines the brightest. You remember at Easter we considered the reality of that darkened sky from noon till 3pm on that Friday afternoon when the Lord Jesus was lifted up on a cross. There we see our darkness. There we see God say, you want to see how heinous and wicked your sin is? You want to feel the reality of your sin? Don't compare yourselves to other people. Look at what God had to do to take care of your sin and mine. And it was not a simple death, as we record over Easter. It was a shameful and humiliating death, a death of a dehumanized, naked criminal who is reduced to an animal sacrifice. And that death there, his death in darkness, starts to illuminate the reality of our sin, exposes our sin. When we deny our sin, we make God to be a liar, not simply because we're denying what his word says about sin, but when we deny our sin, we make God out to be a liar because we say, "Mm, the cross wasn't that necessary. A little over the top. See, in the death of the Lord Jesus, it's actually in the redemption of humanity. It's actually in God's saving act for all humanity that we see revealed the utter sinfulness and fallenness of what it is to be human. The cross is so many things, but it's not... It, it's a, it is... It, the cross is so many things, and it is a revelation of human sin, and it's a revelation and an, and an exposure of our own darkness. We've, uh, in our kitchen, one of the fluorescent round tubes isn't working. And uh, as you know, with those little fl- fluorescent round tubes, they're not very good anyway when they're turned on. So there's two in the kitchen. And even when two were working, it was pretty dim, But uh, over the last couple of months, one hasn't stopped working, and I've tried to replace it, but don't know what's wrong. And so we're only operating with one small fluorescent tube in the kitchen. And so after dinner, you clean up, and, uh, you know, you think you do an all right job. And the reality is you come down the next morning, and with the blinds up and the sun beaming in, you see the reality of all the refuse From last night's dinner, the food scraps and the dirt and dust that were oblivious the night before. You see, it takes the sun to shine upon the reality of our uncleanliness, upon the reality of our sin. It takes the sun, it takes the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to expose the reality of our sin. The light not only, this is our second point, the not only light only exposes, light also reveals. Point three there. Light exposes our sin but also reveals the solution. There's a van that's, and, a, and a truck that are parked uh, on a little back lane on the way to Cabarita Road, Smythe Street. I don't know if you've ever gone down a one-way street and you, I often see down on that street there's van and truck, and on the side of both the van and the truck is written, Crime Scene Cleaners. Have anyone seen these trucks? Just just down here, Smythe Street. Check it out. Go that, home. Go that way on the way home. Crime Scene Cleaners. I think, wow, that's, that's interesting. And then my mind wanders. I, th- I think, you know, what kind of day have they had? You know, what kind of mess... Have they cleaned up? Because when there's a disaster of a mess, you call the industrial kind of cleaners. And we see that our sin is an industrial kind of mess. It can't dealt, be dealt with just by a home job and a little bit of jiff. And there in verse 9, God is calling on us to call in the industrial grade cleaners there in verse 9. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify or cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Here's that other voice. Here's that other voice. It's not the voice that doesn't confess sin, that denies sin. It's the one that acknowledges the reality of sin. See, a relationship with God, we see in the Scriptures, is always marked, not by an absence of the reality of sin, but by an acknowledgement and a confession of it. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. Proverbs chapter 28, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. It's odd, isn't it? It's it's counterintuitive, really, verse 9, because you would think the one who claimed to have an authentic relationship with God would be the one who didn't talk about the reality of sin. You'd think there in verse 6, to to have fellowship with God, you'd also have to say, verse 8, to have fellowship with God, that you don't sin. And there's a logic there, isn't there? What, fellowship with a pure God? well, you can't have any sin. There's a logic that makes a lot of sense. It's the logic of what is really a common religious approach to God. If God is perfect, then I could only approach him if I am perfect. If I can meet his standard. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense except for one thing. It's a logic without the Lord Jesus. Because the solution is there in verse 7. That the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And therefore we confess our sin because we know, verse 9, he is faithful and just and able and willing to forgive us. You see the reality of what John is saying He's saying we don't have to deny our sin. We don't have to deflect it. We don't have to diminish it. We can be honest about the reality of our sin because there's a solution. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins or sinners purged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. See, for some of us, the thing that's hindering our relationship with God, the thing that's preventing a deeper relationship with God and with others is not simply what we do or don't do. It's actually a perception of our goodness. It's a perception of ourselves as beautiful. Richard Lovelace, an American theologian, says, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sin... It's your damnable good works. You see, we want to tell ourselves that we're beautiful in every way, but the reality is we're not. And to keep sin, the acknowledgement of sin, away from our relationship with Jesus is, well, is to say, really, we don't know Jesus himself. We don't know Jesus because this is why he has come. He's come to deal with our sin and the work of the cross. The work of the cross in that dark, on that dark afternoon. That work allows us to say, you know what, I'm not okay. You know what, I'm not beautiful in every way, but there is one who is. And when I come to him, he takes all oh, the reality of my ugliness. He takes that off me. And he shares the beautiful radiance of who he is with me. You see, to be intimate with God, to be close to him, is firstly to be honest with him. Intimacy is ruled by honesty, and so we confess our sin, not because our sin has escaped his attention and God needs an update as to where we're at, but because we do. We need an update as to where we are at with a God who is so willing and more willing to forgive our sin than we are to acknowledge it before him. In this beautiful and profound book, Augustine's Confessions, this book has influenced our world in significant ways for so many reasons. But it's a book basically of a man dealing with the reality of his sin. He was addicted to women and food, And he spent the first 20 years of his life running away from God. And here in this book, he comes to grips with not his inner beauty, but within his inner ugliness. And he says this in the Confessions. Augustine says, I will now call to mind my past foulness and the carnal corruptions of my soul, not because I love them, but that I may love thee, O my God. We come to him in the reality of who we are because we know that he is willing to forgive. And lastly, as we finish, light also reflects. The light not only exposes our sin and reveals the solution, but light also shines and reflects the reality to one another. Verse 7 is an intriguing verse because it says this, but if we walk in the light, yes, we've been talking about it, he is in the light, yes, We have fellowship with God. Is that what it says in verse 7? What does it say? We have fellowship with one another. He's already said that we have fellowship with God back in verse 3. And John's point here in verse 7 is that the very nature of our encounter with the light and with the Lord Jesus will draw us to one another. Because it's not... The reality of the Christian life is not us looking down on others and the reality of their sin. I've just spoken about the reality of sin in everyone's life, but that's not the nature of the Christian life. It's not to look down on other people's sin. The nature of the Christian life is together celebrating the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus. And so this is why a church is not simply a collection of individual Christians. Christian organisations are collections of individual Christians doing similar things. Christian organisations are that. But that is not a church. The church, the fellowship of light, is the result of our fellowship with God and an expression of our encounter with him. And so John reminds us here that we cannot be close to God if our Christian lives are merely consumed by my personal relationship with God. We cannot be close to God if we are not in fellowship With one another, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See the blessing of what we have here? A community of people reflecting this light, the original social network, a family where we belong and where we become. And it's not merely about me and my needs in a church, it's about we. Let me finish with these words from John from uh, John's Gospel in John chapter 3. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that... It may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God alone. Amen. Please let us stand and sing.